Threads from the National Tapestry is now on YouTube. Search for Threads from the National Tapestry on YouTube and subscribe to our channel. On the channel, you'll find full podcast episodes paired with relevant photos and maps about each topic. It's another great way to listen to the show. To search for Threads from the National Tapestry on YouTube and subscribe to our channel. In the first days of the American Civil War, Winfield Scott the then 74-year-old Union General-in-Chief, advised a strategy that he believed was key in putting down the Southern Rebellion. Derisively tabbed the Anaconda Plan, Scott believed, one, the border states had to be held and used as avenues for invasion. Two, Southern ports should be blockaded. And third, to split the Confederacy, the Mississippi River should become a Union highway. This is the story of the incredible campaign that made Scott's third element reality. This is the story of U.S. Grant's campaign and siege of Vicksburg. The last five letters of history spell story. And that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there, to show that history is indeed a story. 220 miles south of Memphis, Tennessee, and 210 miles north of New Orleans, some 3,500 white residents lived in what was tabbed the Queen City on the Bluff. Prompted by twisted terrain and the fact that some of those bluffs towered as high as 300 feet, an observer noted There was only one way to account for all the hills of Vicksburg. After the Lord of creation had made all the big mountains and ranges of hills, he had left on his hands a large amount of scraps. They were all dumped at Vicksburg in a waste heap. Indeed, east of the city the land fell away to a plain, but everywhere else the river, chasms, bogs, and bayous. Despite the geography, the city was quite cultured. It had its own orchestra and a repertory company for theater that specialized in Shakespeare. There were three daily papers and a lecture hall. And by the spring of 1863, this city was the bristling fortress of the some 250-mile stretch of the Mississippi that was still under Confederate control. Union Rear Admiral David Farragut had first crack at capturing the city. If, after his capture of New Orleans back on April the 26th, 1862, if he had moved north immediately, Vicksburg might have been his. But two weeks passed. True, Louisiana's capital, Baton Rouge, fell without a shot. So did Natchez, Mississippi. But on May 18, 1862, when Farragut demanded the surrender of Vicksburg, he got a defiant reply that read, Mississippians don't know and refuse to learn how to surrender. Realizing that the Navy needed infantry assistance, Farragut returned to New Orleans. 
However, Lincoln ordered him back on June the 6th. This time, he was to cooperate with Flag Officer Charles H. Davis, who on the same day, the 6th, had captured Memphis. He and his flotilla moved downriver to a point a few miles upstream from Vicksburg. With mortar schooners, Farragut arrived below the city June 25th and landed 3,200 men under Brigadier General Thomas Williams on the Louisiana side of the river. Those men were put to work on digging a canal. Three days later, Farragut moved upstream toward the city and ran its batteries. One of them commanded by David Todd, Lincoln's brother-in-law. Of the 11 ships which made the run, three turned back. Fifteen men were killed and 30 wounded, but the remaining eight completed the passage. Even though the two Union forces were united, Farragut still realized that 12 to 15,000 more infantrymen were needed. Frustrated, the two Union naval officers now faced another dilemma, the Confederate ironclad Arkansas. Down from the Yazoo River, the ironclad from July 14th through the 22nd had four encounters with Farragut and Davis's flotillas and forced the two to give up the last week of July. Davis headed back upstream. The digging of the canal abandoned, Farragut picked up the infantry unit and having to run the Confederate gauntlet yet again, headed downstream. So, by the end of the summer of 1862, Vicksburg was defiant as ever, but greater Union forces were at work. On October the 25th, 1862, the military department of the Tennessee was taken over by a Union officer who had captured Forts Henry and Donelson and held the field at Shiloh, Major General Ulysses S. Grant. And he had eyes set on the last Confederate citadel on the Mississippi River. Here was a Union officer whose entire life had been filled with repeated personal and professional obstacles. Lessons learned from overcoming them would now serve him extremely well. To Abraham Lincoln, Vicksburg had to be reduced, not only to split the Confederacy, but to give Western farmers an outlet to the Gulf of Mexico. Earlier, naval officers Davis and Farragut had been unsuccessful, but Grant noted their attempts and made adjustments. Because the Yazoo-Mississippi alluvial delta was 200 miles in length and averaged 50 miles in width, he knew there could be no landmarks straight south from Memphis. His line of march would have to be east of the delta, and down the Mississippi Central Railroad line, which paralleled the river some 60 miles east. His first military objective was Jackson, the state capital. Another force under Major General William T. Sherman would move downstream on transports, disembark just north of Vicksburg, and strike at the city from a place known as Chickasaw Bluffs. Yet, as both prepared to move in November of 1862, rumors flew about political and military chicanery. They revolved around Major General John Alexander McLaren, who, though a reasonably competent political general, was a huge self-promoter. 
Politically ambitious, he saw military and political trophies in the capture of Vicksburg, and so proposed his own plan to capture the city and presented it to the president. For Lincoln, this was a delicate situation, for McLaren was a Democrat. And Lincoln did indeed encourage bipartisanship, but he was also well aware of McLaren's popularity back in Illinois and was concerned about that. And as yet, he did not have the particulars about Grant's plan to reduce Vicksburg. No matter, in presenting his plan to Lincoln, McLaren committed a cardinal sin, for he bypassed then-General-in-Chief Henry Halleck and Secretary of War Edwin Stanton. By doing so, he won their dying hatred. If that wasn't concern enough for Grant, there developed another. With cotton speculation running rampant, a family, the Max from Cincinnati, arrived at Grant's headquarters to seek approval to begin such activity. And with them for added punch, none other than Grant's father, Jesse. Furious, the head of the Department of the Tennessee followed up their visit with a December 17, 1862 order. A most controversial one, and it created a firestorm. In the order, and with the max in mind, Grant wrote the following order. The Jews, as a class violating every regulation of trade established by the Treasury Department and also Department orders, are hereby expelled. In Washington City, there were howls of outrage. On January the 6th, 1863, Mr. Lincoln, through Halleck to Grant, revoked it. And moving from the trials and tribulations of U.S. Grant to the Confederate commander charged with defending Vicksburg, he too had his own demons. That officer was 48-year-old native Pennsylvanian Lieutenant General John C. Pemberton, who, with a southern wife Patty, a Virginian, turned his allegiance southward. He was a good officer, but perhaps too inflexible and convention-bound, and particularly bound to a perspective from Richmond. President Jefferson Davis, an adopted Mississippian, made it clear that Vicksburg was, as he put it, the vital point of the Confederacy. It also should be noted that Davis's plantation, Briarfield, was just a few miles downriver from the city. Its defense and the city's were brought into focus in mid-December of 1862, when, with Washington City's approval, both Grant and Sherman headed south. Made aware of Grant's approach, Pemberton ordered two Confederate officers to sabotage the proposed federal plan, and both were temporarily successful. In his drive to take Vicksburg, it would be the first of many reversals for U.S. Grant. Here, the first. On December the 20th, 1862, Confederate Major General Earl Van Dorn and some 3,500 cavalrymen hit Holly Springs, Mississippi, which was Grant's supply depot. The raid caused irreparable damage to Grant's planned campaign. By his estimation, $400,000 worth of federal materiel was destroyed. 
Van Dorn's estimate was 1.5 million. 1,500 Federals were also captured. Despite the setback, Grant tried to improvise. For a short time, he sent troops 15 miles each side of the Mississippi Central Rail Line and successfully lived off the land. And then came another Confederate blow. This reversal was the classic handiwork of Nathan Bedford Forrest, who raided far into the rear of Grant's column. From December 15, 1862 to January 2, 1863, Forrest and some 2,100 men hit Grant's supply line repeatedly. One action at Jackson, Tennessee, cost Forrest 200 men, but his raids killed or paroled as many men as he had, tied up 10 times his number, caused $3 million in damages, captured 10,000 rifles and 1 million cartridges, and tore up 60 miles of Mobile and Ohio track north of Jackson. These devastating raids, coupled with Van Dorn's blow at Holly Springs, forced Grant's hand. He had no choice but to return to Memphis, and his return had a domino effect. Without Grant's support, yet another reversal. Now squarely in Confederate crosshairs, the Union force under Sherman, who was approaching Vicksburg from the north. He already had problems of his own. An angry Major General John A. McLaren, who, returning to the field, intended to take overall command once he caught up with Sherman's force. Arriving in Memphis, December the 29th, 1862, McLaren was prepared to take command of all the men he had recently recruited, but upon his arrival, learned that a tipped-off Sherman left Memphis and headed south down the Mississippi ten days earlier. McLaren immediately boarded a vessel and gave chase. So with 32,500 men, with a military political opportunist in pursuit, and completely unaware that Grant had been forced to turn back, Sherman and his men left their transports and moved 12 miles up the Yazoo River. From there, and again, operating with the belief that Grant's force would be striking Jackson to the east, Sherman attacked Confederate forces under Stephen D. Lee's on December the 29th. That fight just north of Vicksburg would be called the Battle of Chickasaw Bluffs or Walnut Hills. Little did Sherman know that a planter along the river spotted his force in transit, and that individual had a private telegraph. He warned that 81 guns and transports passed here tonight, and John C. Pemberton responded with 19,000 men to the 6,000 Lee already had north of the city. Sherman's men never had a chance. They suffered 1,776 casualties. Confederate defenders, only 187. Adding insult to injury, only a few days later, McLernan arrived. And with blessing from Washington City and outranking Sherman, took over command January the 4th of the new year. Sherman, though miffed, transferred command without incident, and even suggested that to redeem the doomed effort at Chickasaw Bluffs, why not attack Arkansas 
Post, or Fort Heinemann on the Arkansas River some 120 miles upstream from Vicksburg. McLaren agreed, and on January the 11th, some 30,000 Federals overwhelmed 5,000 Confederate defenders and captured the garrison, 17 cannon, and 46,000 rounds of small arm ammunition, all at a cost of 1,061 Federals. Back in Memphis now, Grant was all too aware that as long as he stayed there, McLaren would retain command but would have to relinquish it as soon as his senior, Grant, showed up. On January the 29th, Grant arrived at Young's Point, Louisiana, a small town across the Mississippi and just north of Vicksburg. There, he assumed command the next day. For the next two and a half months, he would initiate four amphibious operations, all unconventional, just to get at Vicksburg. The first operation was given to Sherman, who took his men to an aborted canal that had been started the previous June. His mission was to cut a canal, make a loop in the Mississippi, and thus leave Vicksburg high and dry. One thousand men a day began to dig. Engineers mandated that for the canal to be of use, it had to be 60 feet wide and at least nine feet deep. It was a nasty, laborious task, and made worse by January rains that were the worst in memory. One disgusted Union soldier tried to find some mirth in the situation when he penned, Now I lay me down to sleep in mud that's many fathoms deep. If I'm not here when you awake, just hunt me up with an oyster rake. Grant gave up on the plan after a dam which held back the Mississippi gave way, and instead of scouring the mile-wide peninsula, the entire area flooded, so much so that soldiers who camped on the levees were almost washed away. After two raids by Van Dorn and Forrest, defeat at Chickasaw Bluffs, here was failure number three. Attempt number four was given to Major General James Birdseye McPherson. He was 34, and like Graham, had a grassroots beginning. Though born in a log cabin in Clyde, Ohio, and raised in the most rustic fashion, he graduated atop his West Point class of 1853. His mission was to explore a roundabout passage around Vicksburg, making use of Lake Providence in Louisiana, which was some 40 to 50-odd miles north and west of Vicksburg. The lake was about a mile west of the Mississippi River. If successful, Lake Providence offered a route south of Vicksburg by way of the Red River. Federals could follow the water route to its mouth, turn upstream out in the Mississippi, and then head toward the Confederate fortress city. The greatest drawback? The route would be 470 miles long. The first challenge for McPherson's command was to transport overland a 30-ton steamer that would serve both as a reconnaissance vessel and McPherson's headquarters. Another challenge was to attack the many cypress trees in this swampy area. They had to be cut without leaving a stump so as not to gouge holes in vessels. 
to do this, an underwater saw was invented and was effectively used. For two months, McPherson's men went at it. And among many problems, these northern soldiers were introduced to chiggers. As one put it, his mission is to eat and die. Every soldier was a walking chigger cemetery. After some 60 days and back-breaking endeavor, Grant called the attempt off. The 470-mile-long route was just too prohibitive. Yes, this was failure number four. Now came word of a possible water passage some 350 miles north of Vicksburg, the Yazoo Pass, and it ran twisting and turning some 80 miles east of the Mississippi. If successful, Grant's force would emerge just north of a site called Haines Bluff, which would allow a federal attack on Vicksburg from the east. This daunting assignment went to Lieutenant Colonel James H. Wilson. Access to this route was blocked by a large levee, which the state of Mississippi constructed in the mid-1850s. It was 100 feet thick and 18 feet wide. Wilson, who scouted the route, had the levee blown up February 2, 1863. Its destruction created a 200-foot opening and raised the water level some nine feet. Into this watery portal, Wilson took some 4,500 men and 10 vessels. They would have to travel 350 miles upstream and then make their way to Yazoo Pass, all the more incredible since this route would bring them down to the east about 20 miles from where they actually started. Vicksburg's defender Pemberton was aware this route might be explored and exploited, so he had Confederate work parties fell massive 20-ton trees into the waterways. The route itself was so twisted that some vessels had to turn corners with the help of soldiers pulling hawsers, thick ropes or cables, which were connected to the vessels being used. All the more challenging since low-hanging branches made for wooden tunnels. After all this back-breaking labor, there was a surprise at the point where the Yalabusha River merged with the Yazoo. Old ships had been sunk in the narrow channel, and directly ahead, made out of cotton bales and sandbags, some 1,500 Confederate soldiers under Major General William W. Loring in a makeshift fort that was named Fort Pemberton. It was located most strategically, for only one Federal vessel could advance on it at a time. Three attempts were made, all unsuccessful. After two months of superhuman effort, Wilson gave up on April the 5th. Though it was Grant's fifth failure to get at Vicksburg, he refused to give up. And attempt number six began. Grant and acting Rear Admiral David Dixon Porter went up the Yazoo and explored a place called Steele's Bayou. Yes, the same Porter that Secretary of War Edwin Stanton described as a gas bag. The Stills Bayou route would have to make use of five waterways. 
Stills Bayou led to Black Bayou, which led to Deer Creek, which led to Rolling Fork, which led to the Sunflower River, then back to the Yazoo. If traversed, the 200-mile journey would allow the Federals to outflank Confederate defenses north of the city at Chickasaw Bluffs and Haines Bluffs. After the first 8 to 10 miles in Stills Bayou, the 11 ships used in this expedition had to advance in single file. Forest thickened, waterways narrowed and twisted horribly. To illustrate, on one one-half-mile stretch, five vessels faced five different directions. Each moved one-half mile an hour. From the low-hanging willows and other trees, critters, rats, mice, snakes, raccoons, cockroaches, and lizards all fell to the decks. Alerted Confederate soldiers harassed both men and vessels all contributed to Grant's sixth failure. With yet another disappointment, Union morale suffered, not only amongst Grant's force, but across the North. No matter, the commanding general now planned yet another attempt. It would be rash, for the extended plan would mean his men would have no certain supply line, and if things did not go well, there would be no practical route for retreat. The math was also bad for Grant as well. He was outnumbered two to one, some 60,000 Confederates to Grant's 33,000. When Corps Commanders William Sherman and James McPherson heard of Grant's plan, both had severe doubts. The man from Galena, Illinois, wanted to move 12 naval vessels some 40 miles downriver right by and under the heavy Confederate guns on the commanding bluffs of Vicksburg. They would begin their run at a place called Milliken's Bend and end at New Carthage or Grand Gulf some 20 miles south of the city. Grant and a wary David Dixon Porter chose Thursday night, April 16th. They moved, as it would happen, while Pemberton and many Confederate officers were at a grand ball. Grant's wife, Julia, 12-year-old son, Fred, and a 10-year-old, Ulysses Jr., were with Grant and witnessed the passage. At 9.30, the vessels began to slip quietly downstream. But around 11.30, all hell broke loose. Alerted defenders lit fire rafts on the western bank to silhouette the Union vessels and fired 525 shots. 68 were hits. One transport and a couple of barges were lost, but after two and a half hours, the run was successful. The vessels were south of Vicksburg. Again on April the 22nd, six more supply vessels ran the gauntlet. Only the Tigris was hit. In both forced passages, no one was killed. With Federal ships downstream, Porter now waited for Grant to march his men south via the west bank of the Mississippi, where they would be ferried across to the east bank. With his men and vessels now perilously exposed, Grant had to confuse Pemberton as to his true intention. Therefore, he ordered Sherman to create a diversion northwest of Vicksburg, near Young's Point, threatening Chickasaw Bluffs. 
Another diversionary unit was ordered 100 miles north to Greenville, Mississippi. That group was led by a former music teacher who was most certainly a Renaissance man. Composer, arranger, pianist, flautist, drummer, and guitarist. When he was a boy of eight, he had been kicked by a horse. He hated horses and, of course, was now asked to lead a cavalry raid. That man was Colonel Benjamin H. Grierson, and his mission certainly added to Pemberton's uncertainty about federal plans. Grierson's force of some 1,700 men consisted of the 6th and 7th Illinois and 2nd Iowa. With some wearing apparel that was butternut in color, an unofficial uniform color that many Confederates wore, Grierson's butternut guerrillas began to move between the Mississippi Central and Mobile and Ohio railroads and cut both. That force was also to sever the Southern Mississippi Railroad, which ran east-west. They rode out Friday, April the 17th. 500 Confederates gave chase but were 10 hours behind. For 16 days, these guerrillas and their exploits riveted Pemberton's attention. Grierson estimated that some 20,000 tried to locate his raiders. After two weeks and two days, his exhausted but highly successful cavalrymen reached federally held Baton Rouge May the 2nd. They had moved 30 to 50 miles a day covered 600 miles, severed three rail lines, killed and wounded about 100 of the enemy, captured and paroled over 500, destroyed 50 miles of track and telegraph, captured 3,000 stand of arms and 1,000 horses and mules, all at a casualty cost of 26. Grierson's raid was wildly successful. That, in addition to Sherman's fainting at Chickasaw Bluffs, gave Grant good reason to believe that Pemberton was so confused that Union soldiers could begin their river crossing. Yet, by now, Grand Gulf was no longer their chosen beachhead. An abducted local slave suggested Bruinsburg, eight miles downriver. On Thursday, April the 30th, McLaren's men began to cross. With the nearest federal telegraph station more than 400 miles away at Cairo, Illinois, Sherman was particularly worried about supply. Grant, and a hard lesson learned from Holly Springs last December, decided to make the Mississippi countryside his supply base. But to do that, he had to continue to hold the initiative and keep Pemberton guessing. His force across the river, Grant did just that by fainting north toward Vicksburg, then made straight for the state capital at Jackson, some 47 miles east. On May the 12th, McPherson turned Confederate troops out of the small town of Raymond. With that, a perplexed and concerned Pemberton sought help. He reached out to Confederate General Joseph E. Johnston, who was some 300 miles away at Tullahoma, Tennessee. Still recovering from wounds, he had suffered at Seven Pines back on the last day of May 1862. Johnston, who was sent out west by Jefferson Davis to hopefully alleviate the dire straits the Confederates found themselves in out in the Western Theater, headed for Jackson. 
His trip covered 600 miles and lasted from May the 8th to the 13th. He arrived in Jackson with 12,000 men, even as Grant approached with some 20,000. Grasping the reality of the strategic situation, Johnston commented, I am too late. He wanted Pemberton to come out of the city and fight. Aware that he could do little for Jackson's defense, Johnston left only a token force there and withdrew to the north. Those left behind were no match, and in a driving thunderstorm, Jackson, Mississippi, fell Thursday, May 14th. Not only Mississippi's state capital, it was also a manufacturing town, and Grant ordered much of it burned. Released inmates from the state prison competed in the looting. The two rail lines that ran through the city were also destroyed. About this time, a federal spy informed Grant of Pemberton's dilemma back in Vicksburg. Stay as President Davis wanted, or come out as Johnston suggested. Not understanding that Grant was living off the land, Pemberton did send troops south to try to cut what he believed was Grant's supply line. However, a ranking Joe Johnston ordered that force to move instead east to Clinton, Mississippi to join his force. Halfway there, Federals in McLaren's 13th Corps and McPherson's 17th intercepted them on Sid Champion's farm. It was Saturday, May 16th, and some 23,000 Confederates battled 32,000 Federals. It was a tough little fight and it became the bloodiest battle of the campaign thus far. The Battle of Champions Hill was a Union victory, and it cost 2,441 Union casualties, 3,839 Confederate. Strategically, it was an even bigger Union victory, for it kept Johnston's Confederate force at arm's length to the east and kept Pemberton penned in Vicksburg. As the Confederates withdrew west, then began a running fight that culminated in a stand-up contest 10 miles away at Big Black River. It was May 17th, and three of McLaren's divisions attacked some 5,000 Confederates. Overwhelmed, there were 1,751 Southern casualties, several drowning in their flight across the river. McLaren suffered only 276 casualties and would have pursued, but the fleeing Confederates burned the bridge over the Big Black. Fewer than half of the Confederate force that fought at Champions Hill made it back to the protective fortifications at Vicksburg. Of far greater significance, with the retreat from the Big Black River, Vicksburg's fate was sealed. Pushing their advantage, the Federals pursued and now had only 12 miles to the city of Vicksburg itself. One Union casualty at that time of note, though only nicked in the leg, in panic he cried, I am killed. It was 12-year-old Fred Grant who had accompanied his father. He was fine. Intent on maintaining pressure, Fred's father ordered a crossing of the Big Black River. Four pontoon spans went up overnight. The campaign's big picture now became clear for many who originally doubted it. One that had serious reservations, William Sherman now admitted he understood. Joseph Johnston admitted 
helplessness. Aware of the closing noose, he again pleaded with Pemberton to come out and fight. Better to lose the city rather than the city and an army too. While Pemberton wavered, Grant continued to be masterful. In 20 days since the Mississippi's crossing at Bruinsburg, Grant's troops had marched 180 miles, won five battles, and inflicted 7,000 casualties at a cost of 4,500, and all without the loss of a single gun or stand of colors. On Tuesday, May 19th, Grant kept up the pressure. On that day, McLaren's 13th Corps hit Confederate defenses at Vicksburg from the east, Sherman's 15th and McPherson's 17th from the north. This time, things were different. Inside the city's defenses, Pemberton's men stood firm and inflicted 942 casualties to only 250 of their own. For the next two days, both dug in. One story of note during this time. Sherman's men needed lumber to build a bridge over a large ditch in their front. They, if you will, attacked a house for its lumber, but learned that Grant was asleep in it. Commanding officer removed safely, the house finally came down. On May 22nd, after four hours of artillery fire from all held points, Grant struck this time a little after 10 a.m. The attack on Confederate-held Stockade Redan included the 8th Wisconsin, and for the first time in history, commanders launched their attack using synchronized watches set the night before. Again, Confederate defenses were too strong. Pemberton's men did not yield, and by early afternoon, Grant was about to call off all attacks. Then, he received a scrawled note from 13th Corps Commander McLaren, who claimed control of two Confederate forts and called for a push all along the line to support his gains. All at headquarters were skeptical, but repeated notes arrived, so Grant ordered new attacks. McLaren's men, however, could not hold their gains, and the new attacks were smacked down. Resigned to the result, Grant mused aloud, We'll have to dig our way in. Siege would now be the order of the campaign, and this day, the 22nd, was now the bloodiest day of the campaign. 502 killed and 3,199 total Union casualties. Confederate losses? Fewer than 500. Grant had lost in three days about as many as he had in three weeks. And all made worse as the dead from these attacks lay exposed for as many as six days. Adding to the disappointment was anger over the behavior of McLaren. He antedated letters to make it seem Union successes were due to his ideas. Now another incident. To keep Johnston's troops at arm length to the east, Grant wanted one division from each corps to form a force under Sherman's command. When James H. Wilson arrived to deliver that order, McLaren barked, I'll be goddamned if I do it. When Wilson challenged him, the politician general from Illinois remarked, I was merely expressing my intense vehemence on the subject matter, sir, and I beg your pardon. 
no matter. Wilson repeated the entire scene to Grant word for word. Four days later at Grant's headquarters, his chief of staff, John A. Rollins, reacted to McLarenin's comment with a veritable flow of curse words. When he finished, Grant looked up at those stunned by the verbal broadside and offered, He's not cursing. He is simply expressing his intense vehemence on the subject matter. In short, McLarenin's days were numbered, and the tipping point came in mid-June when Major General Francis Preston Blair, Jr. showed Grant a Memphis newspaper that included a congratulatory order from McLaren to his troops about the May 22nd attack. The order pointed a finger at McPherson's 17th and Sherman's 15th Corps for not supporting his 13th Corps' success. Grant had been waiting for an opportunity, and here it was. You see, McClellan had published an official order without the knowledge and approval of his commanding officer. Grant moved swiftly. He ordered McClellan's removal on Thursday, June 18th. To deliver the order, Grant deliberately chose Wilson, who put on his full-dress uniform and arrived intentionally at 2 in the morning. He entered and found McLernan seated in his tent, also fully dressed and expecting him. McLernan read the order and coughed, Well, sir, I am relieved. Wilson broke a very slight smile, and McLernan remarked, By God, sir, we are both relieved. His war was over, and his troops were now to be commanded by a solid, tough Union officer, Major General E.O.C. Ord. Of course, during all this drama, both Grant and Pemberton's armies continued to dig, offering a glimpse of what was to come in World War I, trench warfare. The Union ring of by now some 50,000 men stretched some 12 miles in length, but officials in Washington City, who now grasped the big picture and sensed eventual victory, offered Grant reinforcements. His numbers grew to 70,000. For the rest of May and all through June, Grant used his 220 guns to keep up a constant bombardment. Pemberton counted with 172. If you were a citizen in Vicksburg, shells rained in around the clock and from every compass point. Even from the river, where Porter's gunboats alone fired and lobbed some 22,000 heavy projectiles during the siege. Their targets were military, but houses and citizens of Vicksburg were vulnerable. In fact, so vulnerable that citizens and soldiers took to digging caves. We believe there were roughly 500 of them dug into the yellow clay around Vicksburg. Though the suffering and constant strain was great, fewer than a dozen citizens were actually killed. Still, horror stories abound. Mark Twain even heard of a man who said he was shaking hands with a friend when an exploding shell left him holding a disembodied hand. During what would be the 47-day siege, the digging and bombardment, command decisions by Grant became rather mundane. In fact, 
Siege warfare was, in his mind, boring. And that spelled trouble if we believe newspaper reporter Sylvanus Cadwallader. He reported long after the war that on June 6th, Grant went on, as he put it, an epic-making bender. Cadwallader reported that it was he who, after this two-day spree, helped to disguise and hide Grant. And again, Cadwallader reported that when the general was unloaded from an ambulance back at his headquarters, his chief of staff, John Rollins, met him head on. Keep in mind, this was also in the middle of the McLaren drama. When Grant emerged from the ambulance, he reportedly shook his shoulders as if to get himself awake, stepped down from the vehicle, and matter-of-factly said, Good evening to everyone as if nothing had happened. Cadwallader was afraid that no one at Grant's headquarters believed his story. But there was Rollins, who, through clenched teeth, muttered as he followed Grant to his tent, No, no, I know him. I know him. Rollins also knew that this usually happened when Grant was bored, lonely. So soon thereafter, the general's wife, Julia, and another son, Jesse, arrived and there was no more problems. And speaking of problems, what was a frustrated Joe Johnston up to? Grant knew he was supposedly raising an army between thirty to 40,000 men to either relieve the city or help Pemberton cut his way out. To prepare for either of those options, remember that he had ordered one division from each of his three corps to monitor a Confederate approach back at the Big Black River. Yet, in truth, Johnston could do very little. He and Pemberton could not communicate. They could not coordinate any activities. And as week after week went by with inactivity, Richmond and Confederate papers took real shots at Johnston's command. One Mobile paper, the Register, wrote that Johnston was, as they put it, giving Grant a terrible letting alone. For the common soldiers of both sides, these were days of filth and blazing sun. For Confederate soldiers, there was the arrival of, as they put it, general starvation, and civilians who did not have access or the money to make use of the black market, mule and horse meat, cat, and sometimes in the extreme rat was eaten. And like every time Johnny Reb and Billy Yank got close to one another for an extended period of time, there was fraternization. Once, a member of the 11th Wisconsin gazed down at a nearby group of Confederates and announced to his mates, I'm going down into that ravine and shake hands with them ribs. Others followed. And before long, there was a mass of men in butternut and gray and blue chatting, trading, and picking blackberries. All that ended when officers in both armies ordered all back to their own lines. Then there was the soldier in the 33rd Illinois who one night tunneled right into a Confederate picket line. Apologies were made. The soldier reversed his course and the engineering encroachment holed up. There were other tunnels dug as well. Mines. On June the 23rd, 35 Federals began work digging a tunnel some 45 feet long with three smaller shafts radiating from it. 
The shaft was located 15 feet beneath a Confederate redan north of the road to Jackson and was held by the 3rd Louisiana and 43rd Mississippi. 2,200 pounds of black powder were placed, and on the afternoon of the 25th, it was detonated. To be quite honest, the Confederates had heard the digging and were somewhat prepared, although the blast did kill six Confederate soldiers. Federals charged into the resulting crater and found the immediate need to protect themselves, for the Confederates had prepared a line farther to the rear. Incredibly, Federals held their exposed position for three days, but at 5 p.m. on the 28th of June, they fell back. There had been 200 Federal losses, while Confederate losses were estimated at 100. One side story from that explosion on the 25th. When the mine blew, there was one unexpected casualty. Raining into the Federal lines, along with dirt and debris, was one black Confederate cook whose name was Abraham. He flew into a portion of the line held by Iowans, and they recognized opportunity when they saw one. Soon thereafter, they charged all comers five cents for a peek at the flying cook. Another mine under the same Confederate redan was detonated the first day of July. That explosion not expected, killed 12 Confederates and wounded 108. But from the lesson learned a few days earlier, no Union assault followed. All desperate moves by desperate men, and none were more desperate than the Confederate soldiers who were months into receiving only one-third of their meat ration and two-thirds of their cornmeal. By the end of June, they were down to one biscuit and a couple of mouthfuls of bacon per day. Grant sensed their weakness and ordered an all-out assault for July the 6th. Ironically, to the east, Joe Johnston finally planned a strike at the Big Black River for July 7th. All of it came to naught. When on Wednesday, July 1st, Pemberton polled all four of his corps commanders. He wanted to know of their men's condition and their ability if he ordered them to fight their way out. All agreed conditions were bad, and no one was in any condition for such a fight. So, at 3 p.m. on a scorching July 3rd, some 200 feet from the Confederate lines, and with weary and anxious troops on each side watching, Pemberton met Grant under a small oak tree to discuss terms for surrender. How ironic, for at about that same time, some 13,000 Confederate troops, a sea of butternut and gray, ebbed their way out of the woods on Seminary Ridge and prepared to march across a three-quarter mile field of clover at Gettysburg. Before the Union commander, Pemberton was quite uncomfortable, and even more so, when Grant said no terms would be extended, but unconditional surrender. Hearing that, Pemberton immediately answered, the conference might as well end, and he turned away. Grant answered softly, very well. 
At that moment, one of Pemberton's generals, John S. Bowen, a former neighbor of Grant's in St. Louis and dying of dysentery, interceded. Both commanding generals agreed to allow their officers to negotiate, and final terms would be announced at 10 o'clock that night. The adjusted terms now allowed for Confederate soldiers to be paroled rather than made prisoners. That proved to be the tipping point. Just a few minutes after midnight, Grant received Pemberton's answer. He opened the note, looked at his son Fred, and said quietly, Vicksburg has surrendered. It was the 47th day of the siege, and even more appropriate, the sun would rise on Saturday, July 4th. Grant's forces during the long siege suffered 10,142 casualties and inflicted 9,091. In the surrender, 31,600 men and 15 Confederate generals laid down their arms. Also captured 172 guns and 60,000 muskets. Major General U.S. Grant's reputation soared as much as Pemberton and Johnston's suffered. For the man who once, at a lonely outpost out west in 1854, was forced to resign his commission, he, in the very near future, would be placed in command of all Union armies in the West. And when word spread that Vicksburg fell, the now isolated 6,000-man Confederate force 300 miles downstream at Port Hudson, Louisiana, surrendered five days later on July the 9th, and they surrendered to Major General Nathaniel Banks. The Confederacy was split. Somewhere up on the Hudson River, far removed from all the fighting, Retired General-in-Chief Winfield Scott had to be thinking, I told you so. And an ecstatic 16th president remarked when he learned of the fall of Vicksburg via telegram, Father of waters again goes unvexed to the sea. Indeed, military results, Lee's army turned back from Gettysburg, Vicksburg and Port Hudson's capture. From July 3rd, 4th, and 9th, all that truly momentous for the Union cause. So significant that there are many who believe the course of the American Civil War was forever turned. Yes, even then, there were those in the South who believed they saw the handwriting on the wall. Confederate Chief of Ordnance Josiah Gorgas was one of those when he wrote, It seems incredible human power could affect such a change in so brief a space. Yesterday, we rode on the pinnacle of success. Today, absolute ruin seems our portion. The Confederacy totters to its destruction. When next we gather will honor the 160th anniversary of the establishment of the International Committee for Relief to the Wounded, the first step in what would become the International Red Cross. We'll spend the inspirational story of a woman whose name, as it should be, is synonymous with the American Red Cross. Next up, the story 
of the Angel of the Battlefield, Clara Barton. For all of us here at Threads from the National Tapestry, good tidings. We welcome yet another patron. Thank you, Mark Braunwort from Taylor Mill, Kentucky. Your support and your interest is deeply appreciated. Thank you. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening. This podcast is sponsored by The Badge Maker, your go-to source for American Civil War Corps badges and other handmade, American-made historical reproductions. Contact the proprietor, Joseph Valicenti, and place your orders at www.civilwarcorpsbadges.com. That's www.civilwarcorpsbadges.com.